Listeners, welcome to the 75th episode of The Goods Film Podcast, and also the fifth week, the fifth episode of Young Adults Adaptation Month. We've just shortened it to Young Adult Month. That's Y-A-M. We're going yam this month. Going yam. And I think this is going to be our last outing, although we'll see what you're going to bring to the table here at the end of the episode. Indeed. But our selection this week is a 2008 film called City of Ember. Now, City of Ember is based off of a book called The City of Ember, which came out in 2003. So the movie came out in 08. The novel came out in 03. And this movie was directed by Gil Keenan. So Gil Keenan's only made a few movies. He's not a household name. He made Monster House. Yeah. And he made the new Poltergeist that I think tanked in 2015. Yeah, we'll have to see what we think of this particular Gil Keenan movie. (laughs) Uh, Monster House was not a smash hit, but take a wild guess why I am familiar with Monster House. The only thing I know about that is that it was written by Dan Harmon. Okay, well, there's that. Um, Robert Zemeckis was involved, probably just as an executive producer. Uh, so some names I like, but it's primarily because, well, what did Robert Zemeckis make? He made a lot of motion capture animated films that were released on 3D Blu-ray. So Oh, you have this in 3D? Monster House, I've got it on a 3D Blu-ray, yeah. I didn't even know that came out in 3D. That's wild. I was always intrigued by that one because I've talked about how I w- was really into animated films for a while. And this one came out around the time when, when that it was on my radar. And just the premise, literally Monster House, I thought was very intriguing. So I'll, I'll catch up with this one sometime. Yeah, it was weird. It's got Steve Buscemi in it, which was cool. Um, It's got kind of a throwback 80s flavor. It feels kind of like the Goonies. Okay. It was all right. Okay. It was a 3D Blu-ray, so I had to get it. Yeah. So the city of Ember. This is a case where I actually watched the movie before I read the book. And I think this we've talked about so far this month how we tend to like things a little bit more if we watch the movie before we read the book. For an example, I really liked the first time I saw it. It's kind of a funny story before I read the book. And now I'm a little more muted on on them. And you mentioned for holes, you kind of felt that way. Yeah, I just think you feel less cheated when you do it that way. You kind of forgive what was left out of the film. It's like you you get more. You you get what you liked in the movie and then additional stuff that you notice in the book rather than the other way around, where you maybe if you enjoyed certain things in the book, you feel left out and let down when they are left out. So what's your take on the Harry Potter movies in this regard? Do you think that, I mean, that one is kind of impossible because it's so permeated in the culture. But for example, I read all of those books first, and I certainly liked the books more than the movies, but I still liked 
most of the movies. I'm right there with you that it's hard to imagine not having read the books first, but I know people who have like only seen the movies or like my brother who has only seen like the first four movies and has never read a book and just kind of petered out of it. Interesting. Yeah. There's different strokes for different folks. Books are better in that regard. I don't know. No like specific change or elision really bothered me. I hope I'm using the word elision right. I'm going to look that up after this episode. Uh, I'm meaning it in the sense of things that are left out. But uh, the one that bothered me the most as far as a change from book to movie is they cast Jim Broadbent as Professor Slughorn. And like his one attribute mentioned in the book is that he has a big walrus mustache like Mythbuster Jamie. But he didn't have a mustache at all in the movie. It's just like he walked on set and was like, nah, don't put that on my face. Yeah. Most of the adult cast in the Harry Potter movies are excellent. And there's occasional disappointing things. I think Michael Gambon or Gambon, I don't know how you say his last name. This is the replacement Dumbledore who came in starting in the third movie. I thought he was a huge step down from Richard Harris who captured all the mysticism and yet kind of stoic power of Dumbledore. I, I really liked Richard Harris as, as Dumbledore. I, I feel you there too, but you know, their hand was kind of forced. Well, that's true. Maybe today they could give you Harry Potter's three through eight with Richard Harris. I guess if you're going to replace him, they could have done better replacing him. No, I, I agree. But in, in his way, Gambon is like more actiony and it, it, sort of suits the the changing role of Dumbledore. I think that's that's a good point. As far as something that was left out entirely, just because we both love Harry Potter and we, I think, can tolerate a side trip through a little Harry Potter talk, I felt really bad that we didn't get to see a blast-ended Scroot in Goblet of Fire. Yeah, those are mentioned a lot in that book, I remember. And I know you like creatures a lot. So I'm not surprised. It just sounded awesome. It's a exploding scorpion. And, you know, I'd seen like the first three movies by this point, and they did a good job of bringing all the crazy creatures to life. And then they just don't even mention these things. Right. There's no monsters in the maze at the end at all. What a bummer. But they did have a Hogwarts band, like a pep band in the stands, which was something new to the movies that was never mentioned in the books. So I thought that was kind of cool. Yeah, yeah. I have dog-eared for us to talk Star Wars at some point, Spider-Man franchise at some point. Maybe we should do a, a deeper Harry Potter discussion at some point. Yeah, I think we need to do some freeform episodes of like top fives or just breaking the mold occasionally we'll think about it we have our our spectacular coming up so that will be something that we maybe we can make some space for but harry potter is is actually quite relevant for a number of reasons and one is that uh, city of ember is not a harry potter knockoff but it is a genre young adult book in the same way that harry potter was a genre young adult book and rode a fad in the same way that Harry Potter kind of created a fad in, in the young adult world. So The City of Ember is a dystopian novel in the approximate same, at least marketing realm as The Hunger Games 
it's very different from the Hunger Games. It's targeted at a younger audience and it's uh, not violent. Yeah, there's less murder here. You still have a society that has crumbled and we're following the, the teens who kind of suffer from that societal decay. And I think it's very interesting how these these kind of fads. So there's been so many dystopian series and especially trilogies like the Hunger Games was a trilogy that just really taps into something in the teen psyche. And I think any one of them you could kind of deconstruct. And I think for dystopian, I think it's a couple of things. I mean, I think growing up in the 2000s to today, there's just not a huge amount of optimism in the younger generation about the future of the world, the future of our country. I think it kind of taps into that. But I also just think when you hit the teenage years, there's an onslaught of all these like societal pressures and you realize that the world is darker and more complicated than you thought it was as a kid. And that just falls in line with the notion of a dystopia to some extent. Yeah, I think it's also a timeless idea that you start to think, wow, I could do things better than the adults do. So extrapolate that to, oh, the adults have ruined the world, but the world that I would create, you know, that that would be an improvement. And so so much of storytelling is like the the young rising up and replacing the old and just charting a new course. Right. So a couple of other noteworthy YA fads. Obviously, Harry Potter was massive and it, it really kicked off the YA industry in general, but. There was a whole bunch of learning to use magic stories. I'm the magic hero to save the world. Now, granted, that that's kind of a, a large percentage of children's fiction in general, I think. But definitely you saw like the Percy Jackson series, for example, was huge after Harry Potter and Rick Riordan is still turning books out. And there have been plenty of others there. Yeah, let's not forget smash hit Max Magician. <laughs> yeah. Although I don't know if there's a novel on that one. I would read a Max Magician novel if it existed. Learn more about what the rings actually are. <laughs> we could we could write a Max Magician novel. <laughs> uh, the fanfic. Yeah. The novelization unauthorized. But I think if you're talking young adult fads and you're someone who's a millennial like us, there is one that stands out above the rest, and that is the supernatural romance kicked off by Twilight. These were just absolutely everywhere. If you I'm sure you can find pictures of Barnes and Nobles that had like dedicated teen supernatural romance sections in their stores, like shelves filled with them, all with the black cover with dramatic splashes of red on them, just like Twilight. Yeah, I like that little header sticker on top of the bookshelves that says supernatural teen romance i got a good chuckle when i saw there were enough of them to fill a whole section i think we've actually done a good job of covering our bases so far this young adult month so we've got our kind of not quite hunger games pick this week we don't have a not quite twilight this month but we did have cirque du freak the vampire's assistant during our circus month coverage last year you know, we had an old school pick in Outsiders. We've had our uh, not quite John Green with some of the stuff we've talked about. 
Yes, yeah, so actual John Green was Paper Towns, and then we had uh, the one just a couple weeks ago, which was, it's kind of a funny story. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, we, we had two in the fairly mainstream coming of age. We had both perks, and it's kind of a funny story, which I, I think they brought very different things to the table. So I think there was good different picks. But if you were really trying to go more diverse, I think you could have thrown in a supernatural romance or just something kind of weirder because we mostly went mainstream. You picked the the decom that was uh, a little bit out of left field, but I feel like there's definitely realm for, for some weirder YA adaptations. My brother will on the discord for our podcast, by the way, our podcast has a discord. I don't know how to get the link to listeners, but if you want the link to our discord, go to email me, uh, the goods film podcast at gmail.com. And I'll figure out how to get you a link. Is now a good time to mention your being featured in print? Oh, <laughs> let me finish this thought and then and then you can go ahead and mention that. Anyways, my, my brother Will had a whole bunch of different when he heard what the theme month was, he had a whole bunch of different pitches for different books we could have considered. And he he had a couple of animes he recommended. And I feel like you could do we didn't do anything animated or anything too uh, weird or obscure. So I feel like we could have penciled something in there. But in general, I do. I agree. We hit the basis pretty well. And in what sense is that an adaptation? Like it was based on a manga? Well, I think the one he was recommended was based off of a prose fiction, but it was a animated Japanese animated movie. So an anime movie. That's cool. But based off of a Japanese prose novel. Yeah. And while we're on the topic of growing the community and reaching out, building our networks, Dan was recently featured as an expert commentator in an article in The Mirror, a prominent British publication. So how did that come about? Yeah, <laughs> this was fun. So I got an email from a reporter who found some of my old writing online. So earnthis.net, our blog, I did a pretty in-depth article that kind of took a, a critical comparison between the two versions of the TV show, The Office, the British version and the American version, both of which were very formative on me and, and huge favorites of mine. And this reporter basically wanted to send me a few questions to provide some quotes for a preview piece coming out about the Australian version of The Office. And so I answered the questions and about about one or two of the five sentences that I wrote in reply were in that article that ended up being written. And what I didn't realize, what the reporter didn't share, is that the real thrust of the article was that they were sharing who is taking the Michael Scott role, uh, some woman Australian actress who I was not familiar with. And I just gave a very general thoughts on what it would be like rebo rebooting the office in a different culture. But... That was fun and it was cool. And I, she asked me how I wanted to be credited if she credited me. And I said, as host of The Goods, a film podcast. And so you can see that in the mirror. It's pretty cool. Yes, it's wild. This is a bizarre thing to have happen. But well done in your commentary. Well done in creating a blog that has prominent search engine optimization. <laughs> yeah. 
I feel like there's a chance the writer needed a quote the day the article was due, and they googled office comparison, maybe. And it, it works, because I was replying minutes after she emailed me, so there you go. Yeah, that was fun. So we, I, I used to write more about TV. Obviously, this is a film podcast, but still cool to, to get to talk about that. So back to Yam and City of Ember. So since this is the last week, I, I just wanted to see if there were any young adult adaptations you were thinking of picking that you didn't get a chance to pick, Brian. Well, I've considered Holes. I've talked about it a bit here on the podcast. Definitely a film that I enjoy, as well as a book. Um, I think we've done a pretty good job covering our bases. I'd have to look up... Like, I, I have a couple of movies in my head that I have a suspicion might have been based on a book, but I don't really know, so I I wouldn't feel safe saying those. I Like, I feel like one that's in that gray area for me is Warm Bodies. Was that ever a book? We've... We've danced around it a little bit. I, I'm curious to watch that at some point. I don't know if that has a book counterpart. Let me see. Yes. Okay, I thought it was. Not clear if it's YA. It is a paranormal romance, though. So probably it would have counted. Okay. If we were a little closer to October. Uh, but of course, we have covered a zombie teen romance before. Yeah. So I actually had a really deep roster of movies I was thinking of picking from. And I would just say in general, I, I came up with a list that I found on Letterboxd of like over 100 movies based off of YA books. And I would have watched just about any of them. That was a good list. Yeah. And uh, just a couple of highlights that were on my short list. So one is the Ender's Game adaptation, which I feel like that book was a big deal when I was a kid. And then that adaptation came and went. And I feel like people kind of forgot about it. Like, I don't ever hear about the Ender's Game adaptation. Did you ever see Ender's Game? I did not see the movie. I did read it for school back in the day. Orson Scott Card is one of those guys who's kind of been canceled in recent years. Although the, I think they made the movie after the controversy. So, yeah, I did not see that one. Yeah, that would be a fun one to revisit. I have vaguely positive recollections of it, but I, ha I haven't seen it in quite a while. I saw it in theaters. And then one that I actually had penciled in instead of City of Ember before I realized it's actually a decom. I was like, oh, I don't want to do two decoms in one month, at least not for this theme month, maybe a future theme <laughs> month. But there's a movie called Avalon High, which is based off of a book I've actually read by Meg Cabot, who also wrote the Princess Diaries, which is another well-known adaptation of a YA book that I would have considered. But Avalon High is about a girl who goes to a high school and realizes that like the high school is connected to Arthurian legend. And I always thought that I always thought it would be fun to see the adaptation since I read the book, but it was in another decom, so I wanted some variety. You know another movie that had an Arthurian high school? What's that? Shrek the Third. <laughs> Which is not a good film. Avalon High has a good chance of being superior. I maybe I I'm, I wouldn't put a lot of a middling <laughs> chance, non-trivial for sure. But Princess Diaries would have been a good pick, or like Ella Enchanted or something. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Some that I've seen and know that I liked at the time and would want to see if I still like. 
but I kind of already did that with it's kind of a funny story, so I didn't want to do that again, are The Spectacular Now and Me and Earl and the Dying Girl, which I talked a little bit about in the um, It's Kind of a Funny Story episode. But the strongest runner-up, the one that I, I just, I was so tempted to pick, but I didn't, is a movie called I Boy, which the idea of this is like, a, a, it came out like three years ago or something. And it stars the actress who plays Arya in Game of Thrones as the female lead. And I don't even know who plays the male lead. But this this boy who a phone or some piece of technology explodes and implants in his head in such a way that he gains powers from the technology improving his brain and he becomes a super boy, but he's iBoy because it's like iPhone. And it got horrible reviews. It just looks so delightfully terrible. I almost wanted to pick it out as like a spite pick. Maybe I'll pick it in the future at some point. <laughs> but it was a book first? Yeah, it was based off of a book. I'm going to look up if the book was also called iBoy. I'm not sure. <laughs> yes, it's based off of the 2010 novel of the same name by Kevin Brooks. Okay. I'm wondering why you didn't pick iBoy. Because <laughs> I wanted to hit one of the fads. I don't know if this counts as... I don't think there's a whole fad around exploding cell phones giving boys powers. <laughs> Fortunately. If only. Two more things I wanted to call out before we actually dive into the story. This has been a long prelude and I apologize for that. So uh, Before I Fall is a YA adaptation that's also... A time loop movie. So it would have been like a a double dip, two theme months at once. Before I fall, before I boy. <laughs> the last one is Spontaneous. We already watched. That turns out I just discovered that's also a YA adaptation. So we've actually done, prior to this month, we had done three, not two, like I had thought. So there you go. Nice. All right. So on to City of Ember itself. So I watched the movie first, and this is actually a rare instance where I wish I had I had read the book first. I'm going to talk a little bit more about that as we go here. But the premise of this story is that two characters named Dune, D-O-O-N, and Lina, L-I-N-A, are kind of in this dark city lit entirely by these glowing incandescent bulbs that is like dying. The power is dying there. And what are they going to do with this dying city? So I read the book and the book, I would say, is not super duper great. It's fine, but the prose is really basic and not all that ambitious. And I think that reflects in the script that we get for this film. The script is kind of generic, as we'll talk a little bit about as we go along. But it was fine. It's, it's, a, it's a good story. It's actually really close to the movie. So talking about the movie is more or less talking about the book in this case, unlike plenty of other adaptations, like the Percy Jackson adaptations. It's almost like they got the title and they took a few character names and inspired events. And that's all like there's this. This one's actually pretty close. And I think most of the ones we've talked about have been fairly close. I think the least similar was the read it and weep that we talked about in the second week yeah you mentioned that the thing i mostly know about the city of ember book 
is the cover, which has a light bulb on the front, but the filament spells out Ember, which I think is a pretty cool image. They reused it for the opening of the film. Yeah. So this movie opens with the only real laugh I got in this movie. So it opens with the production company, uh, which is Playtone. Do you know why this made me laugh, Brian? That's Tom Hanks's production house, right? Yes. Well, so it's a very like steely gray with a, it gets a dramatic Zimmer-esque drum as it shows the Playtone logo. But do you know the origin of the name Playtone? Well, it's the record label in that thing you do, right? Exactly. So this is like a fake music, pop music from the 60s record label turned into a Tom Hanks production company given this real dramatic intro and i was not expecting that and it, it made me laugh so dan likes it anytime something from that thing you do shows up in another movie oh yeah go listen to la la land for me my mind melting talking about uh, unexpected that thing you do appearance it's all a growing cinematic universe <laughs> tgcu <laughs> the good cinematic universe Oh, no, I was referring specifically to that thing you do. Oh, T-T-Y-D-C-U. Yeah. Yeah, there you go. So the movie and the book have a prologue where we see a group of like scientists, engineering type people putting pieces of paper into a metal suitcase looking box and talking about how the timer will be set for 200 years. So, Brian, what did you think of this prologue? Okay, so a couple things is I think the first line of the movie is something like the day the world ended, all the smartest people in the world created this box. And what I was wondering, of course, is how is the world ending? Tell me a little bit more about how and why is the world ending? Because the solution is that they're going to put everybody down in a fallout vault, basically. And my knowledge of the Fallout series of video games comes from playing Fallout 3. I, I realized there were games before that, but that one's all about starting out in a vault. And then in, after a long time, you get out of the vault and you are wandering the wasteland. So that was what was running in my mind watching this film. And there they make it pretty clear that it's a nuclear war. I assume that's what's going on here. Is it elucidated in the book? So that's that's a... Good question that has two meaningful answers. So one is that the book itself, the, the main City of Ember book, is just as vague as the movie. Now, the, it's a four-book series, and I have not read any of the other books except the first. But book three, bizarrely, just book three, is a prequel by 300 years. So basically, actually, is it 300 years? It's something like that. So it's what's leading up to what ends up being called, quote unquote, the disaster in the books. We don't hear much of that in the first book because we don't really know what's going on. But apparently that's what it ends up being called in the second book and beyond the disaster. OK. And what the prequel talks about is rising political tensions with a group of rogue states getting nuclear weapons. So it's not directly said, but I think it's strongly suggested that it's like upcoming nuclear warfare, nuclear winter. That said, I actually think it reads more as a reaction to climate change than anything else. 
if you don't have that context. That's interesting. Kind of like Wally. Because, I mean, they have a timer set on this box that they're making. And so what I was thinking is, okay, after 200 years, it's going to be safe to come out because the fallout will have decayed or what have you. Well, I think you could have the same thing for climate change. It's like if civilization collapses and there's no more carbon dioxide spewed out, I don't know what the time frame is, but X hundred of years, the carbon dioxide will dissipate some and temperatures will restabilize and that's when you could come out. Okay, could be. But yeah, so there's one extremely crucial difference between the book and the novel. And this is probably reason A1 that I wish that I read the novel before I watch the movie. The opening monologue makes it explicitly clear that everything that happens from now on is an underground city buried under the earth. It's never in doubt. That's exactly what we're looking at. It explicitly says it. The book, on the other hand, just has the builders talking about 200 years. They don't say what they're doing. It's just going to be 200 years. And then it cuts to what's happening. So we have this gradually emerging understanding of the reality and have you read the giver brian no but that would have been another good one to feature in our month here yeah that was adapted fairly recently too so that book i really love and it does this really interesting stuff where it describes things in a way that it's like okay i kind of see what they're saying but then it's not until they learn something in the future that you realize that they just didn't know what something was. So the way that they were describing it, it was like they just had some fundamental difference about how they viewed the world. And the one in The Giver, can I spoil something from The Giver? Is that okay? That's all right. Yeah. So they talk about like the way that something looks and a character notices that something looks weird and it's describing the quality of how it looks. There's just something different about it. Like, this looks different, like nothing I've ever seen. Well, it turns out he's the first character to see color in centuries. And so you think he's just noticed something that looked odd, but it turns out what he has seen is color. And so it's like all these things that are missing from the dystopia that as it gets pieced back together, you realize that we're missing. And I think the movie loses a little bit by knowing exactly what the scenario is and rather than letting that unfold. Yeah, I can only imagine, because they make it clear that that's what we're in, is an underground bunker city where everything is contained. Right, because it's like in the book, it's like, why you gradually realize, why is there no sunlight? Oh, why are they not days in the normal sense? Oh, why is there not this or that? There's no fire. There's more of a big deal about that in the book. There's no fire. And so when they encounter fire, they're like, whoa, what is this? what is a candle? I've never heard of a candle and and stuff like that. So I don't know. I kind of missed that from the movie, but I'm getting a little ahead of myself here. After this, this opening here, this box is given to the mayor of this new underground city and it gets passed from the idea is I think that this box will be passed from mayor to mayor. It contains some secret information. And then we learn that one mayor kind of, stashed it away or something like lost it i forget the verbiage used i got the impression that one of the mayors was like done away with through foul play or it wasn't really clear to me what happened because they just kind of show mayor portraits and then they say 
that like something insidious, nefarious happened to this one mare, and so it's it's unclear why it went missing, but it it did it got misplaced. Yeah, that never clicked for me either. I had some speculation on it, like maybe this is supposed to prime us for distrusting future mayors or something, like they're illegitimate popes, you know. Definitely. I don't know. But after we see this kind of time passage, we jump ahead to the city itself, the underground city, and it's called Ember. And it's pretty cool looking. What did you think of this this production design of this underground city, Brian? So for production design, this movie gets an eight out of eight from me. It's by far the best thing about the film. They did a really good job creating this underground city. I love all the dangling light bulbs and the color patina that everything has. Like, everything is this washed-out amber-yellow, except for, like, notable colors that are associated with each of the, like, trade guilds. Like, certain jobs have special colors that they wear, and anything that is, like, brightly colored is very prized, and it's held up as being important, but... Most of the things just have this, like, tungsten yellow, inside lighting, washed out color. Oh, and there's pipes everywhere. It's like, uh, I've heard this style called diesel punk. Like, if you've ever played another video game, Bioshock. That's the vibe I was getting from the way things look with all these old-timey pipes running everywhere and just this crumbling infrastructure that's constantly being patched. Mmm. I'm not familiar with diesel punk. That's interesting. So, well, the idea is that um, steampunk, the more common term, refers to an era where they've got technology as it existed in like the Victorian era, the second half of the 1800s. But then they've like used it to create more advanced uh, inventions. So you've got like steam powered cars or, or whatever, steam powered laptops. But uh, diesel punk advances it a little bit. So, like, you've got a world in the 30s or 40s, like the inner war years. So uh, an example of this would be like the Rocketeer or something or Sky Captain in the World of Tomorrow, where you have um, technology that existed at that time, but then kind of they've done the same thing with it as, as they would do with a steampunk. Well, that descriptor feels pretty apt then, because I think that pretty much nails it. The way that I was going to describe this town is quasi-steampunk, dystopian, faux-rural. Rural. How do you say that word? Rural. The rural juror. <laughs> so I'll say that one more time. Quasi-steampunk, dystopian, faux-rural. So it's got like that things are kind of shabby feel to it, and things are not quite urban even though it's an underground city although portions of it are more urban but you get like kind of shacks and greenhouses and i don't know dusty little buildings that are kind of like on the side of the road but you also have all the stuff that you mentioned so yeah it's it's a really interesting setting and i agree with everything you're saying about the design the color was just blew my mind it's i agree with you that most of it is this kind of warmish, golden-hued, as if lit by an old-fashioned light bulb look. Very yellow. 
but there's really intense color grading all around. Like, I think it's digital color grading. I'm not too familiar with the filmmaking process itself, but like really adding emphasis on these colors. Like there's a red cloak that's really important and blue lights whenever we're in this, the pipes, it's actually a lot of like orange blue popping contrast, like from the, the posters, they, it leans a lot on that. And man, it's just the colors. They, they're really in your face and really striking it almost struck me as tacky, just how strong and bright the colors are. But I ultimately came down positive on it. I think it's just a very strong defined visual palette with like a huge emphasis on the color associations and such. So I uh, I ultimately liked it too. Yeah. So the first kind of scene we see here in the city is assignment day for a group of kids. So assignment day is when you have these, I don't know, they're probably about 15-year-olds moving on from their education to their professional future. And the way that they determine what their job will be is they pull their future jobs out of a hat or a bag or something. It's like you pull a label out. It's like, oh, I work in the pipes. Oh, I work for the baker or whatever. Yeah, literally pulling job assignments out of a hat. This is a bad way to run your society. (laughs) I mean, there's like Like, fictional worlds where you might have something like a sorting hat or I think of the Team Star Kid show Starship where there's a species of insect aliens and the show opens on the day that the queen is assigning the roles that each individual insect is going to fill. But in, in those cases, like the wise figure assigning jobs knows the different people and knows what their aptitudes are and so has like a point of reference for assigning these things but this is completely random you just draw it out of the hat and now for the rest of your life i guess you're going down into the mines or the the pipe works at least give them a personality test like you Check three bubbles. Hey, do you like pipes? No. Well, I probably shouldn't do pipe works then. <laughs> it's like it, it wouldn't be too hard. Possible episode title. Do you like pipes? <laughs> so the book gives a little more context for this. So the book describes it as a trial period. So you get randomly assigned your first job based on the needs of the city And you try that out, but then people kind of rotate depending on what their strengths and weaknesses are, which makes a little more sense. But like you don't need to randomly assign them at the start. They're just never there's never a good reason for that. So I don't know. At the same time, if it ensures that everybody gets a job, you know, that might not be the worst thing in the world. I suppose it's better to have a job and then no job. Yeah. But two of the people that we meet are Lena played by Searsha Ronan. So I think that's how you say it. Searsha. Searsha. It's like it's an Irish name. Meaning it has all kinds of letters in there. S-A-O-I-R-S-E is what I think the spelling is. Searsha. Right. They they had her hosting Saturday Night Live, and one of the bits was entirely about pronouncing her name, and it was pretty close to what you're saying, so... Let's go with that. That's Lena. And the other character is Dune. 
played by some fella named Harry Treadaway. I think they spent all their casting budget on Saoirse Ronan. And so they ran out of money to give to the male co-lead. So they had to find uh, Zero Charisma co-star Harry Treadaway. I wasn't a fan of Harry Treadaway. I thought he just had an annoying face <laughs> and wasn't bringing much to the table. Yeah. Uh, spoilers, I guess. The big thing that did it for me positively in this movie was like the look of the world and not a whole lot else. <laughs> not not Dune, D-O-O-N. Yeah. I, so what I liked about Dune is he gets the little card that says messenger on it and she gets the one that says pipe works. And then they don't want those. Neither of them is happy with their assignments. And so they decide to trade the cards, which I guess you can just do. <laughs> Invalidating the whole system. If you could just pick the one that you want. Right. It's a black market. Yeah. Ridiculous. Is it the piece of paper that you pull out? Is that what it is that determines where? Because then the piece of papers themselves are really valuable. Or is it like, is somebody notating this somewhere? Or does nobody know what anyone drew? And you can just show up at the baker's. Oh, well, you show, I, you drew cake baker from the hat? Oh, yeah, that's exactly what I drew. Well, I didn't know that. Well, I guess you're a cake baker now. <laughs> I like that little voice you did of the baker. I, I hope that character comes back in a later episode of our show. <laughs> okay, yeah, I'll keep that in mind. But, <laughs> yeah, so they trade the jobs, and then Dune goes down into the pipeworks, and I recognize some of this in my uh, construction work this past year. So you had some empathy, yeah. You know, he's got the hard hat on, and I I may have even mentioned it in a previous episode, but, like, of the trades I've run into, the people who seem to get the dirtiest are the pipe guys. Oh, so you got some respect for the pipe guys. In a sense. They seem like they've got a dirty job. So after they trade these job assignments, we spend the next couple scenes getting to learn a little bit more about Lena and Dune. So Lena's parents have passed away. She is an orphan. I, I guess... I don't know what the strict definition of orphan is. Is it just if your both your parents died? I think so. Because she lives with her grandmother. Does that make her an orphan, even though she lives with her grandmother? I think your parents just have to be dead. Okay. So she lives with her grandmother, but her grandmother is very dementia-ridden. She does the thing that's kind of the cliche of dementia in fiction, where they don't. she doesn't know where she is temporally. She talks about things that happened years ago and vaguely remembers important things and talks about them in an incoherent way and stuff. And I think this actress who plays the grandma was one of the grandparents in the Tim Burton Charlie and the Chocolate Factory around about 2005 or 2006. I didn't see that one, but I guess she carved out a niche for herself as bedridden grandma number one. <laughs> Lena also has a younger sister named Poppy, and she's in the realm of two to three years old. Can we talk about Poppy? Sure. What were your Poppy thoughts? I didn't have strong Poppy thoughts. She was just a plot mechanism for me. She always had to. 
be taken care of. Uh, add, increase the stakes. This kid was very annoying to me. <laughs> so you got Randy in Snow Day and Poppy in this one, and I, I can't decide which one is more obnoxious and is just there to like pick up something off the ground and put it in her mouth and then the other characters have to say no no poppy <laughs> don't put the fate of the universe in your mouth yeah we've all been there well us parents don't put that thing in your mouth i i understand the annoyance with her but i also just that's the way the two-year-olds are it's the way of the world okay well it's good to know it's at least authentic i'll keep that in mind no, my, my two-year-old doesn't put things in her mouth too much anymore, but when they're teething, they put things in their mouth. And I suppose Poppy could have been teething at this point. Anyways, one thing that Lena and Poppy do is, and this is not in the book, so I don't know where they came up with this idea for the movie, but they take recordings of the parents. It's like a voicemail, a phone voicemail. And they like have a crank player for the voicemail. So the idea is you hear your parents' voice as you go to sleep, but it's like the same four voicemails you hear. Like, oh, make sure you go and get the groceries today that they hear as they, they go to sleep. It's really interesting to see what technology does and does not exist in this world. Okay, so they've got audio tape, but it's like old and decrepit and they need this special way to play it. And they have the incandescent light bulbs, but they don't have a telegraph. They have to send a person running across the city like freaking Majora's Mask, like it's the Middle Ages. And I don't know why that is. Hmm. If you have electric light, why, why don't you have like a telephone that you could call somebody across the street? Because you got wires. Yeah, it's a good it doesn't point. really make sense to me. And also, I mean, it's a case where 200 years has passed, and I know this is the apocalypse, but, like, people could still invent things with the, the things they have at their disposal. I, although I am a big fan of the crumbling infrastructure and how they, like, don't have any anything to replace pipes, so when Dune is working down there, the advice that his boss is giving him is just, oh, you gotta wrap it in tape, because that's, that's all we got. But... Bit of a tangent here. It reminds me of like in Wally, where you've got the Wally robot who his job is to clean up the planet while the humans are away on the cruise ship. And like it, it kind of seems like technology would stop then because the humans have stagnated and they're off on their ship. But then Eve is like a very much more advanced robot. So, like, who developed that more advanced? technology i i don't know that's interesting it it's interesting to think about how and when technology progresses or doesn't right well you, you kind of alluded to this lena's job that she gets after the trade is messenger so she's like the the pony express and she has a distinctive red cape little red riding hood cape that she wears running around town delivering messages from person to person. And yeah, you're right. There is some incongruity in terms of the technology levels. So you name dropped Little Red Riding Hood. I was thinking of that as well, because she does live with her granny and she keeps calling her granny. And 
then I was wondering, like, oh, are they doing a whole fairy tale thing? Are there other fairy tales buried here? And I didn't pick up on any others, so I don't know what the Red Riding Hood thing is about. But Well, I didn't even think about that, but yeah, uh, that's an interesting... That would have been a real interesting story structure, like... In a dystopia, a whole bunch of fairy tales come to life. That that would it could have been quite a wild. Like if Dune was Jack be nimble or something. Yeah, there's a beanstalk or something. Oh man, they do go up an elevator type thing. <laughs> interesting. <laughs> Potentially interesting. Uh, yeah, maybe not interesting. So so that's Lena. Dune. Meanwhile, Dune. He. He lives with his dad and he's got the best life in the world. Dune does because who is his dad, but cool. Tim Robbins, Tim Robbins is his dad and he's the coolest guy in in all of Ember. He builds gadgets and and nifty things. And he's, he's like, he likes his son. He's nice to him, gives him space. And and, here comes Harry Treadaway or whatever his name is. Here comes Dune. He's like, uh, Dad, what are you doing, man? Come on. Oh, I don't want your graduation gift. Why'd you make this, Dad? He's like, shut up, dude. Your dad is cool Tim Robbins. I want my dad to be cool Tim Robbins. But uh, I guess, I don't know. That's that's a bummer. The gift that he gets is this like little custom-made tool. It looks kind of like a screwdriver, but it's going to turn out to be like an unlocker device or something. Yeah, it's like a screwdriver with a extended head in the middle you like you can stretch it out and it kind of looks like a back scratcher or like the little arm that comes out of r2d2 speaking of the dad has a little robot rolling around that reminded me of r2d2 oh yeah that's right and that one is like a a more steampunky thing yeah it just it doesn't seem to have a clear purpose it just kind of rolls around right so the the dad character is in the book but I think in the later books, he gets more significance. In the first book, he does almost nothing. There's this whole thread of like the parents are connected. Dune's parents and Lena's parents were both trying to figure out a way out of Ember. And it's supposed to be a dramatic reveal that their parents were buddies and working on this together. But it it didn't click too much for me. And I wish... Cool Tim Robbins ended up having more to do, but he he doesn't have too much to do in this movie other than be a dad with a a son played by Harry Treadaway. Yep. Now that we've kind of met the families, we see them start their professional lives. And this is when we get to see much more of the city itself and really get to appreciate the production design in in the the crevices of the, the town. We learn, for example, we learn some really interesting things about Ember. So one thing we learn is that the the outer areas of Ember, if you were to go out beyond the edges of it, it's a, it's a region where people don't know what happens in that region. And so the name of this place is the Unknown Regions. So that that's what the name of the area outside of the city limits, the Unknown Regions. So I was unclear how this worked because... They're in this city that's excavated under the ground. Presumably it's like a cave. You know, it's got walls on every side and a rock ceiling. So where are these people coming from who have been out in the unknown regions? How can there be an unknown region? What, they're walking around out in the woods? How is there anything out there that people don't know what it is? 
it's not 100% clear, but my take is that the cave exceeds the size of the city. So if you go beyond where there is light, go beyond the city, that is the unknown regions. All right. That, that makes sense. I'll, I'll take that. But it's, it's definitely not clear. I, I would definitely agree with that. Another thing about the unknown regions, apparently giant animals have evolved there, particularly bugs. We like get some shots of these big old mothy looking things. I guess Dune likes mothy, giant moth things. Yeah, well, I mean, when you got a whole when your whole thing is light bulbs, you got to have some moths around. That's you've seen the memes. Oh, good point. Good point. I didn't even make that connection. Another thing about the city is that there are occasional blackouts and these blackouts are like the power failing for a few seconds at a time, except it's getting worse and worse in the city. That's something they keep saying. So this is perhaps a sign of embers coming doom because, you know, we know that they're underground. They might not know what the concept of underground is, but they know that when the power goes out, they can't see or do anything. I really like these blackouts because they did something interesting with the sound design where they did like this deep rattling, like you could feel it all around you. And definitely it was like they made it scary beyond just the loss of light. I thought that was pretty cool. Yeah, I really dig this concept. And one of my favorite podcasts is called Hardcore History and something that the host has talked about on that show multiple times is the idea that there are civilizational highs and lows. There are times when civilization is not as advanced as what came before because of some disaster. And so he talks about, like, the Dark Ages compared to the Roman Empire, where things that the Empire built were useful for centuries afterwards... And the people didn't have a way to build things of that technological level. So they could use it until it broke, but then they couldn't make more of that thing. They just wouldn't have access to that technology again. So a similar thing here with the generator, that it was built centuries ago. And basically the what the people are able to do is is patch it and... Like, maybe swap out some components, but they wouldn't be able to rebuild it from scratch. And just the looming doom of that is striking. Yeah, I agree. I, I think it's pretty cool. And it, it definitely captures the fear of, like, this lightless oblivion. I don't know. Dune, meanwhile, is wandering the pipe so his dream is he wants to figure out how to stop these blackouts he wants to figure out how to get into the generator and figure out how to fix it but he's stuck on pipe works so he's like wandering around the pipes and like he knows where the generator is eventually he gets to peek his head in there and i don't know uh, i like the character of his like supervisor played by martin landau this guy's catchphrase is, it's not my job. <laughs> so he's very into the notion of you've got this one position that's assigned to you. And that's all that matters. It's all you ever need to care about. And the other person's job is their business. I, I like that. In this weird world system where you just get handed your little card. I like that there are people like this. 
Yeah, we meet him early on and then he gets a really dramatic scene late in the movie. I wanted more of this guy. I, I, I agree. I liked him, too. But Lena ultimately ends up finding at her house the case, the case from the, the builders at the beginning of the movie. Uh, she finds it at her house or well, I guess her grandmother's house. And this is where we come to understand that she's a descendant of a former mayor. But Poppy, God damn it, Poppy. She like cracked open the thing with this secret world changing documents and shoved them in her mouth and slobbered all over them and tore them and spittled them up and stuff. And so we have a busted MacGuffin that Lena is going to spend the rest of the movie trying to understand. So she, she gets the case and she has the case now. So something about Lena being related to the mayor somewhere along the way, she's going to be looking at this hall of portraits of the different mayors throughout the years. And she sees the one of her grandfather or great grandfather. And she says something like, wow, I live in the same place that he lived. This is the stupidest line in the movie. <laughs> of course, you live in the same place that he lived. You live in a vault. That's the way a vault works. Or any story with like a generation ship or anything like that. You're in this one little insular community that's going to keep you safe for 200 years, I guess. So you're going to live in the same place that your grandfather lived, Lena. <laughs> keep that in your head. Don't say it. You're going to sound dumb. Well, no, but it's like in the the Truman Show. I recently rewatched the Truman Show. Truman is like wonders things. And I kept thinking this dude has been in a controlled environment in his entire life. He wouldn't know about some of these other things. And it's the same thing with Lena. She doesn't know what other places are. Like, it shouldn't be astonishing to her. Yeah, then it's even weirder that she would remark on it. Exactly. I agree. It's like, did ancient civilizations think about that? Did some kids say, wow, I can't believe my great grandfather lived here. No, you don't think that because this is the one place, you know, to you, that is the place where people live. That's all that, you know. So I don't know. I agree with you. It's dumb. But that's all right, because uh, we're going to need to figure out what, what lives beyond the ember here. So one thing about Lena, remember, she's a messenger. And at one point, oh, I don't even think I, I mentioned this. The mayor of Ember, the mayor, the current mayor. Yes, the current mayor. So not the not Lena's descendant or Lena's ancestor, rather. But the current mayor is played by Bill Murray out of nowhere. He's got a pot belly here. And he's he's the mayor and he's ends up being the villain of the movie here. Spoiler. But even from the start, when he's just kind of like a disinterested bureaucrat, he has a slightly villainous air about him. What do you think of Bill Murray in City of Ember, Brian? He's got a good presence when he first shows up. He is like strolling around town and he has this canopy that his servants carry for him. So it's like not quite a sedan chair, but it's close. Like there's this little umbrella thing that they're carrying around and he's just kind of sauntering around with his big gut. And it, it, he's funny. Uh, Bill Murray is funny. Controversial opinion. <laughs> he almost brings too much apathy to the part. 
he's just so like disinterested in earnestly being a bad guy here. Yeah, I mean, he's like phoning in his role, but like makes that part of the role. Right. In the book, the mayor is much more hoity-toity, but I kind of like Murray's reading of it where he's he's just very blasé about everything he does. So, yeah. Anyways, so Lena gets a message to deliver to Bill Murray. It's a very heavily encoded message. Here's the message she gets. Your shipment is in. Brian, do you have any idea what this coded message could mean for the mayor? Do you think maybe he has some illicit shipment that he is ready to receive? And like the guy is like all whispery and shifty eyed about it. I think that's a safe bet. Oh, I wonder what's going on here. But one thing I like when when she delivers this message is he makes fun of her name. Oh, Lena Mayfleet. That's an odd name. Mayfleet, like someone who's a messenger is named Mayfleet. And I thought this was lampshading the cliche in, in YA novels of making your hero have a name very relevant to their fate. The classic example is Remus Lupin, who has first name named after a character who suckled on a wolf and whose last name is the Latin word for wolf and ends up becoming a werewolf. What a great coincidence. It's like the Remus Lupin situation. But for for Alina Mayfleet, I thought it was fun when he was making fun of that. Yeah. Harry Potter's full of that. It is interesting to think that R- Remus Lupin's parents named him that, not knowing that he was going to get bit by a werewolf. Right. I, I guess they just really hoped. And and Sirius Black, he he was named after a dog constellation. And wouldn't you know it, his animagus ends up being a dog. A black dog. What's more? Yeah, there you go. So... Albus Dumbledore ends up with a white beard, too. That one's maybe a little <laughs> bit less obvious. I don't know. <laughs> no, you're you're right. But we get another one of these blackouts, and this one's a particularly bad blackout. And and Lena's granny dies during this blackout, and this is kind of when she had been stammering about that box and how important that box is that that Lena found. But Lena and Poppy now have to move in with this family that's a member of there's like a kind of a fundy, almost a cult, not quite a cult, but they're like a uh, intensive religious sect that worship the builders as like these deities, which I thought was kind of cool. It ends up not meaning all that much, but I thought that was an interesting twist on like historical figures is like making them into gods is what some portion of the people do. Yeah, what struck me about this new family was that they wore all blue. And so I mentioned that a lot of the other stuff is like this drab yellow color. And so I was primed to look out for distinct colors. So everybody here in this household is blue. And also, I I thought they were dressed a little fancier than the granny, at least. And so it had me wondering about class in this society. Like mm. the, this new family seemed like they were a little bit more upper class or upper middle class. And I was wondering, like, how does that work in this society where jobs are doled out? And the answer is they don't go into it very much uh, other than we're going to learn a little bit more about what the mayor's got going on. But 
I, I was wondering about the economics of this society. That's interesting. Yeah. It's like you, you could have a whole separate dystopia here. That's like a heavily class defined system, but we only get hints of that. Like there's, there ends up being a thing here with the mayor where he kind of controls a sort of upper class, but it doesn't dig too deep into the, the various class levels in the, in Ember. Right. We should watch the Lorax 2012 at some point. Oh, that would be a fun one. Yeah. Needville. So Lena's kind of focused right now on reconstructing this message that Poppy chomped up and, and getting it in a readable form. And she realizes that there's a reference to pipeworks in this message. And so she loops in Dune to help her. Now we got Lena and Dune back on the same page. I want to make clear that when they say this character's name, they just say Dune, like it's a regular name in this world. But <laughs> I have enjoyed your emphasis, Dan. <laughs> On D-O-O-N instead of uh, D-U-N-E. Yeah. So they, they start exploring the pipeworks. They're trying to find whatever this document is describing. So th this to me was like, I don't know. I knew where this was leading. It's like, how do you get out of the underground bunker? You get out and that's going to be the conclusion. But it's like played as if we don't know what it's going to be. Uh, did you uh, know that it was going to be getting out of the bunker, Brian? Was that obvious to you? I mean, I assumed that what was in the box was instructions for how to leave because it's got the timer on it. So, like, I guess when the time runs out, it's safe to go back to the surface. Right. right? That's what would make sense. Uh, although they didn't tell us what the disaster was, so I don't know how to gauge... What could be going on out there? But that's just, I'm going off of Fallout 3 here. So the Fallouts, you know, the, enough of the stuff has decayed by this point that it's, you don't have to worry about the radiation anymore and you can go up. The door is going to unlock or something and you can leave. Right. And so they, they start exploring. And this is where I start to lose a little bit of track of like the thread of where anyone is supposed to be at any given point. It starts to become a little bit of plot mumbo jumbo to me, but they find a bunch of different things here, the secret compartments and stuff. And they're able to find, Oh, I didn't know there was a lever here. All sorts. Oh, this made a wall shift, things like that all the time. And through all this exploration, some of the things they find. So they run into a giant carnivorous star nosed mole which is a very distinctive looking animal. And it ends up being like the scary thing that chases them around. They discover this helmet. The helmet itself might've been discovered earlier, but they like re encounter it. And it has Lena's last name on it, Mayfleet. And so they take this to mean that Lena's dad was involved with some group of people trying to figure out how to escape Ember. And spoiler alert, it turns out cool Tim Robbins was also in on that. And so now both of their parents were trying to escape. And so they're fulfilling that destiny. Uh, another thing they discover is a secret chamber for the mayor where he's hoarding this stolen food in a bunker. So they infer that his plan is to ultimately just live with him and his, his cans of food in his own bunker within a bunker at some point. Right. So he's got food that the other people don't have access to. So 
this is like the one thing about the villain that makes sense to me is he's exploiting people. He's got this food squirreled away that only he can eat. And I'm surprised nobody else has called him out on the fact that he's the only person in town who's fat. <laughs> Everybody else is starving. Bill Murray is walking around big and fat. And nobody's like, huh, until this point where they find his storage of food. So this had me hating him. Like, this is bad when your your population is starving, but you're not. Right, right. That's some dictator shit, yeah. Maybe they just don't know what fat is. They've never had a fat person before. This person is shaped different for me. I wonder why this person is shaped so different. Huh. Interesting to think about. But what I was missing from the villain is a reason why people should not be leaving. Like, we have these mentions that the parents were part of this cool rebel sect, and they were investigating ways to leave. But I never really got the impression that anyone was trying to stop them. Like, Bill Murray doesn't really seem invested to me in the idea that no one must ever leave because I want to have my tyrannical powers forever. There's, like, no scheme to do that i'll say that they don't make it clear why the box went missing like maybe there was a mayor somewhere along the way who thought that and so hid the box but there's so much that's unexplained yeah i mean i guess the biggest inference you could make here is that when someone's in power anything that shakes up the scenario where they are the one in power and the people around them are not, is going to be a scenario they're not going to want to give up. But you're right, it, it's it's not really like he loses things, because the deliverables of his power are, I guess he gets some people to like hold up his canopy or whatever, but he gets a secret stash of food. Cans of food in a private room. So like literally every other person in the city could go away, and he would still have a room with the cans of food. It's like, I, I agree with you, that doesn't really make sense. Like, why would he be trying to, I mean, maybe he just wants to like stomp out dissent in general. Why would he have much investment in preventing people from exploring or whatever? You know, I don't know. I agree. But there's some big confrontation with the mayor where the mayor sees the box and Lena's like, eh. I don't know. I don't even remember. I think she's delivering a message or something. She has some interaction with the mayor. And she steals the key from the mayor and she runs away from him. And now all of a sudden there's wanted signs up for Lena and Dune. They're, they're personas non grata here. And so they get Poppy and they're, they're going to be on the run. That's the third act of this movie is now they're on the run from the mayor and everything. But they're not really chased down all that much after they escape. So I don't know. Yeah. Just in general... Our villain is not very active, aside from he's got his doomsday store of special food. That's his big evil deed. Part of Lena and Dune's big plan is that they're going to escape on a very important Ember holiday called the Great Day of Singing. Could anybody guess what the tradition is that happens on this holiday? The Great Day of Singing. 
It's like some of the naming and, and stuff in this is so cliche, stupid. It's like, oh, it will give it, be given a dramatic on the nose name in this dystopian future. The great day of singing. I kind of like the way it's depicted, though, where just everybody walks out into the town square and sings like the Ember National Anthem, which is a very short song, and they just repeat it over and over. <laughs> kind of stand there awkwardly looking at each other as they chant this thing. I think it's it's a, a good thing to have be like your central holiday. Okay, yeah, that's a good point. Like, singing is a good Holiday activity. I agree with that. I like Christmas carols at Christmas. Yeah, you're going to go and sing your apocalypse carols. Yeah. Fat Mayor is great carol. The builders brought us light. We like our bunker home. And they just repeat again. Yeah. It's something along those lines. There's not a lot of melodic complexity. So during this great day of singing, well, they have like their... They're not being chased because everybody's out there singing about how great the mayor is, how good Ember is, or whatever all the stuff, the builders, whatever the themes of the song are. Dune and Lena are doing their big escape. And so the last half hour of this movie, all of a sudden the genre of the movie has changed. Now it's like a escape room puzzle adventure it's like it reminded me of Dan Brown where there's clues and you got to, oh, you hold the document this way with this light shadow. And now, you know, you have to go to this spot on the map. But look, this map actually resembles this room. So you tilt it this way and now you have to pull this lever. And I also thought of national treasure in terms of like encoded clues on documents. Right. I was definitely thinking of national treasure in terms of uh, conspiracy that's unfolded over centuries and like one gadget activates another gadget and then you end up in this big hall so that's what i was thinking of too but this movie something we haven't said yet it's very rushed like it's not a very long movie and i think just overall it could have benefited from like having an extra half hour and a significant portion of that being some exposition to, like, give me a reason to care about this world and its lore. Completely agree. I think the rush is most keenly felt in this last portion of the film, because, like, all of a sudden they're doing all this shit. It's like, oh, we're going to make this Dr. Seuss looking go-kart with weird blades attached to it go from here to there. And I'm like, I, I have no context for why this is good or bad at this point. Why do I care about this thing? And why is it cool that it's happening? Because it seems like it should be cool that it's happening. But I don't know. Yeah, I agree. There's like a secret door that turns into a boat. But I couldn't, I guess we were near the pipeworks. I just couldn't figure out where we were at any point. It was just going so fast. I liked this segment where there's like a bookcase that slides out of the wall on a track and then it tips into the water and you see that it's actually like a canoe with rows of seats. And that that was a cool concept. But yeah, it, it seems like the main reason that like it's hard to leave is that there's like a big spinning wooden wheel in the way of where the boats would go out. And then they find a way to raise the water. So, I, I yeah, I don't know. It's... Like, the, the journey from points A to B to C 
was a little arbitrary and and the pacing was very strange. And so, yeah, they need to like ride these boats out of the city. And the way that they do it, I guess, is like the Dune's boss, the Pipeworks guy. So is this was this Martin Landau? I don't know. Yeah. He needs to do the dramatic sacrifice to allow the water to rise. This was great because the whole movie, he's like sleeping at his post because nothing's going on. But then all of a sudden, the little gauge that he is at starts beeping. And I knew what he was going to say. All movie long, he's been saying it's not my job. Well, now the time has come. He's actually got to do the thing he's been called on to do. (laughs) And so he comes, you know, racing through. We got to do this. Well, how do you know? Because it's my job. That's pretty good. Do you know Martin Landau from any movies in specific? I don't think so. So what I remember him from is another movie he's in with Bill Murray, which is the film Ed Wood, which is a biopic Tim Burton directed about the filmmaker behind famous schlocky films like Plan 9 from Outer Space. But in that one, Martin Landau plays Bella Lugosi, the actor who starred as Dracula. And Martin Landau actually won the Oscar for Best Supporting Actor for that role. Oh, wow. He's much less prominent here. That's some real cred. Yeah. I think this was like one of his last films because he was already old in um, Ed Wood, which is like 94. And what was this? 2008? Yeah. So it's, <laughs> it's like 24 years later. It's yeah. It's crazy. Wait, no. 14 years later, but still. Oh, I guess he uh, he, he was alive until um, 2017. So just a couple years ago. Died at age 89. And so then eventually, Lena and Dune and Poppy, they ride this boat to a staircase that has like hints of some other society. And they walk up the staircase and all of a sudden, boom, they're outside. And they they get to be astonished at trees and birds and ultimately this really beautiful and I think well-captured sunrise It's like very dramatic to them because they've never seen sunlight before. So this is kind of like the culminating moment of City of Ember. So they're out on the surface, yeah. But I wish I cared more. (laughs) Right. Or like, I don't know. So the characters are following this trail, but I, I wish they had more of a motivation, just like that they knew... I mean, I, I assume they, they picked up at some point along the way that their goal is to leave the city, but maybe maybe it would have been more interesting to see the generation of the parents hitting on their idea to escape. I don't know, yeah. Or something. Yeah, like an Order of the Phoenix, but City of Ember. That's That's promising. The book does slightly better by this concept because we get to, like, gradually see them understand these things without us knowing what it is at first. And they talk about there was a fuzziness in the distance. Hold on. Is that fuzziness? Maybe light. And then we gradually realize it's sunrise. So it clicked a little more in the book, but it's still visually well represented in the movie. But I agree that like the emotional heft of it, like the, the stakes of it are not really there. So I don't know. It's, it's a little bit of a mixed bag of a climax for me. Uh, we we go back to the the mayor at this point, and the mayor, I guess he sees that 
shit's going down, like all the stuff that they're doing is like causing Ember to rumble some. And so he runs to his bunker and seals the door, fights off some, some of his guards, gets in the, the bunker. And it turns out that that Starno's mole that we had a chase scene with earlier is in the bunker now. So I guess our thought is that that thing eats the face of Bill Murray here at the end of the movie. Yeah, pretty brutal way for this guy to go out if he, he does indeed get eaten by a mole. Yeah. And then out on the surface... So there's a plot point in the book that's kind of alluded to here in the movie, but very briefly and much more prominent in the book, although it's still not even that big of a deal, is like they think they know that they're going to escape the city, but they don't know that they're going to the surface. They think they're just leaving the city to maybe find some other city or something. So they write a note to say, here's where we think we need to go to leave the city. And then they start to leave but Lena, this is when she panic grabs Poppy and runs away and forgets to leave that message anywhere. So, like, they've left, but nobody knows where they've gone. And in the movie, they find a place to drop the message. It's like this big chasm. They drop it down there. And lo and behold, they drop the message down. It's like taped to a rock and it falls down and it lands square in the hands of Cool Tim Robbins. He's the perfect man to get it. He's going to, our takeaway is that he's going to be able to tell the city about leaving Ember because he was the right man to get the message. In the book, it's like some other side character who we'd seen on the fringes. Uh, it's, I think she's the woman who works in the greenhouse maybe or something, but she gets it and it's more ominous. Will she be able to get them out or not? I don't know, but yeah. I have two thoughts about this ending. Well, one is, so we've got Tim Robbins here. And what movie do we know Tim Robbins from? I only know him from one movie. I've seen him in a couple of things, but by far his most famous is Shawshank Redemption. Right. He's the dude in Shawshank Redemption. He's Andy. And this ending is surprisingly Shawshank-like because you've got the people who escaped... And they're sending a message back telling the person who's still there how to escape. Hmm. Because the last line could just as well have been, I hope. Right. So now Inventor Dad has got to find his way to the field and dig up the box that's going to tell him how to get to Zihuatanejo. Zihuatanejo or whatever. Yeah. But the other thought about this ending... There's a big crack in the ceiling that is just directly above the city of Ember, I guess. And A, how did no one notice that there's an opening out to the sky? <laughs> and B, how was it secure at all if there was some terrible world-ending disaster if there's this chasm out to the sky i mean I, maybe it's opened at some point during the past 200 years but the fact that no one has noticed it down in the city very strange to me it's stupid af when you start to think about it real stupid why oh wow we're gonna protect it we're gonna have this great bunker It'd be protected from nuclear warfare and climate change the one thing is there's a huge a huge gap straight up to the sun that other than that crack, though, 
that by the way that's like uh several meters wide other than that though there's no way they're gonna be able to have any connection with it the outside it's like what did rain go down there i don't know yeah like there must have been water and stuff coming down did any animals jump in that hole i don't know yeah it's a good question that's the way the movie ends with and oh we get like a voiceover monologue about hope and survival so yeah very shawshank-esque but that's city of ember 2008 that was a movie we watched brian indeed we did dan and we've just spoken about it so some good things and not so good things about city of ember i genuinely love the look we've said it i like the sets and the costumes and that's gonna be a big factor behind the positive aspects of my rating I agree. I, I also overall like the cast. I feel like other than Dune, I there was nobody I was looking at like, eh, why was that person this person, this character? I mean, I guess maybe Poppy's kind of annoying, but toddlers are annoying, so it kind of works. But yeah, I, I like the cast. Um, I like cool Tim Robbins, Saoirse Ronan, and there's like random people who appear it's like one of the guards is played by someone I recognized. I don't know, just a, a pretty strong cast. I didn't realize there was a Best Supporting Actor winner or nominee or whatever who played the boss man, too. So that's cool. Martin Landau. And one thing I haven't mentioned yet, this has a pretty cool epic score. I like the music on this, too. I mean, it's maybe a little generic action-y adventure movie, but it at least is like sweeping at the right moments i thought so i liked the score as well mm -hmm. was that a an affirmative or was that a skeptical i agree okay i thought it was you know it was it was pretty good it had swells to it it was on the level of like a national treasure score yeah so you know it's not a john williams indiana jones but it's pretty good it's it's swelled at dramatic moments um, some not so good things. I've hit almost all of them at this point. Just a kind of an amalgamation of things that all add up. Combination of the dialogue being very generic, the rushed pace at the end. And then for as cool as the production setting and stuff is, it's, it happens so fast. I didn't really, I was like, oh, this wall is moving. But I didn't even know where we were when this wall was moving. Were we the generator? The pipes? Some back alley? I don't know. But a wall's moving. And just that sense of pace and space and place. Oh, man. I had a trifecta ride without realizing it. That was missing for me. So it made moments of that dramatic escape feel less impactful. It's just kind of generic and kind of bland. Right. Uh, where's the time when I would say a movie needs to be longer? But this, I think, is one of them. It's like... Give us maybe a little more at the start. I want to know what happened before. Uh, like, just a little bit more about why they hit on this plan of building the city and, and what is the purpose of the city. I mean, I, I, I know it's to keep people safe. But then maybe give me some more at the other end of why is it hard to leave? Why are there people who don't want them to leave? See, I almost feel like you could go that way or you could go the opposite way where... It's like you get no information because I feel like the amount of information we give is the wrong amount of ambiguity. It's like we want to know more about 
the quote unquote disaster, but also we know there is one and we know and that it's a bunker. And so we kind of more or less know what to expect. So either just like throw us in there without us knowing anything like Luke Skywalker style. Uh, we don't know that he's a part of a big empire rebellion, all that stuff at the start. I mean, I guess we get the crawl, so maybe we do, but it, it just felt like there was some dimension or level of intrigue missing from the story as we, we have it. Yeah, it's like go one way or the other with it. So that's what I have. Any other thoughts before we jump to our is it good section? No, I'm ready. Okay, so is it good is our signature section where we each give the movie a rating on our eight point goodness scale ranging from very not good, which would be a one out of eight at the bottom to our masterpiece rating toward a good, which is an eight out of eight. So, Brian, I will ask you, is City of Ember 2008 good? So where I came down on this one is a four out of eight, a good ish. And that's bolstered pretty much entirely by the visuals. I really enjoyed looking at this world. I wanted to walk around in it. And they do a good job of showing us different parts of it. I mean, like the the pipe environment, especially, and the generator at the center of it all. And you really get the sense that their lives are linked to that and that if it leaves them in darkness, that's going to be a big problem. Um, but it's really held back overall by like a lot of inconsistencies. The, the crack in the ceiling is like a crack in the movie as a whole. And I was left with a lot of questions that I wonder if sequels would answer. It's, it doesn't, well, I guess it does leave things on a, a cliffhanger because they walk out into the sunlight and you wonder, okay, what happens next? And does the rest of the city go with them? Um, it was a little more satisfying than like the ending of Cirque du Freak, where it ends with now the war with the Vampanese has begun. Um, and it's like, well, you know, you don't always know if your young adult movie adaptation is going to lead to a franchise. So give us a satisfying ending in part one. <laughs> I'm impressed you remember the ending of Cirque du Freak, I gotta say. But, but go on. Well, it's like it builds to a fight and then they fight, but it's not the fight that matters. It's like, well, just wait for the big fight in part two. But I thought like the Harry Potters did a good job of giving us a satisfying resolution every year, except maybe three where that, you know, is is more of a cliffhanger. Um, but by that point, it was like well established. And with Harry Potter, they sold so many books, you you knew there was never a doubt that the movies were going to keep coming. But, like, give us a good note to go out on. This movie and just young adult adaptations as a whole, I feel like the first chapter, some of them have a tendency to leave things unresolved in the name of dramatic tension and you got to come back next time to see how it all turns out and learn more about this world and don't you want to see what happens next if you don't give us some closure we're not going to be satisfied enough to buy enough tickets to ensure that part two ever happens yeah you got to bring bring it all bring it don't leave anything back in your first episode i i agree with that and 
I I think that's a good lesson. Don't bank on more unless you've already been bankrolled for part two or something like that. And even then, do make your audience happy. They, your audience doesn't know the franchise. They got to love a first story before they love your franchise. Bring it all there. So I, I get it. And I agree. I, I feel like this one ends at an appropriate place because we know they got out and we don't know what happens next, but it still feels like a satisfying conclusion in the sense that they achieved a full thing, even if it wasn't everything, but they did achieve a full thing. That's like a paradigm shift now for them. And so it's enough for you to imagine the future. You know, they're the Adam and Eve of the new world or whatever. Like that's, that's kind of a enough of a closure thought for me, but I still feel like they could have gone out even stronger. I, I definitely agree with that. Yeah, I, I think you're right. It's not a bad ending. It's it's more the things of, like in the opening, that they make it very mysterious. Who were the builders? What was the disaster? Mm-hmm. And it leaves you with questions that we're never going to know the answers to, unless maybe we read some books. So on that note, the second book picks up after everyone has escaped Ember and is trying to set up a new civilization on Earth. At least that's what I got from reading the Wikipedia article. I don't know if that's exactly right, but that was the gist of of what I got from reading a plot summary, is that it takes place like a X amount of time in the future. Their efforts to communicate back with Ember worked, and so now we've, we've just kind of hopped over a significant portion of conflict to the new conflict of uh, setting up a new world. Oh, great. Well, I guess I got at least one answer. So thank you, Dan. Yeah, I, I'm not intrigued enough to read the rest of them, but I am intrigued enough to read three paragraphs in three different Wikipedia articles for books two through four. Yeah. But now that we're here, is it good? Yeah, so I am going to land right where you landed. Good-ish. I think... This movie never treads into badness, but it has enough things that are totally generic, just bland, too much blandness intermingled with the things that are that are quite nice about the bones of a great adventure story and movie, you know, dystopia. It could have been something, but there's just enough stuff that makes you shrug that it's not quite good. You know, oh, yeah, wow, that's some great production design, but eh, I don't like the main characters all that much. Well, I, I don't know. I kind of liked Lena just because I liked Saoirse Ronan. But if you were to say, hey, what are the three defining characteristics of Dune? I don't know what they are. What are they? I, he likes generators or so. I don't know. Something like that. I can't tell you. He's resentful of having a cool dad. OK, there's just like not enough that really stands out as like really gripping and really compelling. And I use the characters as just like a microcosm of that. The world and the plot is halfway there to being really interesting, but it's just not all the way there. And I think that's the, this movie in general is it's, it's got promise. It's got some cool stuff, but it's only good ish. It's not good, Brian. So we're going to land on a four out of eight for both of us. I think a good dystopian story really needs to begin with a musical number introducing the town. And we didn't get that here, so. So I know that's a uh, Lorax reference. Is there other stuff too? 
Well, also in the Lego movie, it doesn't really introduce the town, I guess, but they sing everything is awesome. Yeah, that's good stuff, too. Well, you know what, Brian? That's City of Ember 2008. That's Young Adult Month. We went yam. <laughs> yeah, February is a month that gets left in the dust quickly. It's a, a short month, but we've given it the standard treatment. Five stories, five chronicles. And so our very next episode will actually be our 75th episode spectacular. Join us where we're going to reflect a little bit. We'll look back, look forward. We'll do some the goods by the numbers and we'll have a little awards show. I don't know what it's even called at this point. The goodies, maybe. But we'll talk about that. And then what are we going to be watching after our spectacular, Brian? Okay, so what I've got in store We'll talk a little bit more about why when it rolls around, but it is a science fiction film and it's going to be our first ever motion picture from India that we've covered here on the podcast. So we've had some Japanese films, a Chinese film. Uh, now we're going to South Asia. I think it is in Tamil originally. I'm going to look that up and get an actual answer. So like... My Indian friend said it's not it's not a Bollywood movie because it's actually from the Tamil Film Production Center. Uh, so I have to actually read up what that is so I, I don't sound too dumb when we're talking about it. The story that uh, I have selected, it's a film called Enderon or The Robot from around about 2010. And it's a high budget science fiction epic and as any good indian film it's got some big musical numbers in the mix so singing dancing cgi robot well i've never heard of this it sounds very intriguing i'm looking forward to watching it and discussing it in a couple of weeks brian so oh me too i think it's gonna be fun i have enjoyed yam and theron uh yeah it's like e-n-d-h-i-r-a-n Hmm. You could just look up the robot if you want. Enderon. Okay, yeah. Okay, but in the meantime, listeners, join us for our retrospective, looking backward, looking forward, in the 75th episode, Spectacular. Thank you for joining us all along here on The Goods, a film podcast. Bye, everyone. Bye, everyone.